Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octa non verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Formerly the best extreme free skier in the world for 12 years, Kristen Ulmer is now a high-performance facilitator and author of The Art of Fear. God, I love the name of that book. A book which radically challenges existing norms about what to do about fear and anxiety. Working with groups and individuals all over the world, some of her clients and keynotes have included Google, Citigroup, Olympic athletes, and the U.S. Air Force. So I'm a speaker, and I know that those are some tremendous people to be able to speak in front of. And you have an event coming up May 13th through the 15th in Salt Lake City. Can you tell us just a little tease of that real quick, and then we'll jump in? The event in May is for people who have tried everything to feel better emotionally. And nothing has worked. Meditation hasn't worked. Cognitive behavioral therapy hasn't worked. Positive affirmations, gratitude practice, all that stuff are just temporary band-aids. And they're actually ready to address the problem from the ground up. You know, maybe anxiety issues or depression or PTSD. They're ready for a revolutionary approach to these problems in their lives, these emotional problems in their lives that actually work and permanently resolves these issues. Well, we need more for sure, especially in today's world where everybody's an authority on social media. (laughs) They all have these things going on. So we were talking before, what is it like to be you in this space? What is it like to be you with this almost completely opposite approach to what a lot of people do when it comes to fear, to anxiety, to actually looking inside, figuring out what that really means and how we can address those things in a productive way. Well, a couple things to say about that. So my background as a fear and anxiety expert is that you need credentials. And my credentials are I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a self-help guru. Well, I guess I am now, but (laughs) I come from having a radical real world experience with a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety in that I was risking my life for a living on skis for 15 years. And, you know, what does the word extreme mean? It means the consequences of failure are either injury or death. And so I made a living risking my life for a living for a really long time. And I did some things right by fear and I did some things wrong by fear. And when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about fear too. It's pretty much the same thing. You know what? Maybe I'll clarify that later, the difference, but not much. And it's funny because some people say, oh, I don't have any fear, but I have an anxiety disorder. I'm like, well, (laughs) that's fear, right? (laughs) It's called semantics, people. Yeah. So what it's like for me to be me is, I mean, I'm grateful that I have that background because I'm taken seriously. And people want to listen to what I have to say. And as I become bigger and bigger and more well-known, and I'm about to write a second book called The End of Anxiety, you know, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen next because, again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. And what I teach 
there's been very few scientific studies for what I teach. I've tried to get them, but I don't have 2 million bucks sitting around it. The only research that I've done is just working with clients for 20 years and just seeing what works and also drawing from my own past and history of dealing with a tremendous amount of fear. And I mean, I've basically put the puzzle together of why some people struggle with anxiety and other people don't, or why some people have depression and other people don't. And it's completely different from what we've been told. And the solution actually is I mean, what we have right now to deal with irrational fear or anxiety disorder, depression, these are just all band-aids and they're never going to solve these problems. They're just top-down temporary band-aids, like even meditation. And here's the thing, they actually cause worse anxiety and depression and on and on emotional issues than they resolve because they're contributing to the problem, which is nobody's dealing with their fear or other emotions in an honest way. And so I am basically taking on the entire anxiety and depression healthcare industry and challenging them and saying, this is not working, you know, as evidenced by the growing numbers of anxiety disorders, depression, all that PTSD. And it's time to completely rethink this. And this is what I've come up with that actually does work, that I've proven to work. It's scary. (laughs) Somebody asked me the other day when the book, The End of Anxiety comes out, is Big Pharma going to try to murder you? I'm like, well, I've I've never thought about that, but maybe, I don't know. Like, this is big. Like, what we're going to discuss in this podcast is completely out of the box, unlike anything anybody's ever heard before. And it actually is a bottom-up solution that resolves so many different emotional issues. And it's so simple and it's so obvious. And people have such ahas, like, of course, and it is basically asking the entire emotional healthcare industry to completely rewrite the way that they approach these emotional problems. I'm devoting my life to it. And I realize now that my ski career was only in education for me to put this puzzle together. And the other thing I have to say is that I wish people wouldn't keep asking me about my ski career because I'm just so done with it. And I just really want to do what I'm doing now, which is help people with these emotional problems. But I feel like I have to keep answering those questions about my ski career to legitimize my work. And like you said, that kind of gets people's attention. That gets their foot in the door. But now that they're here, now you can really dig down to what is going on. Again, if we're chasing symptomatology, we'll never get to the source. We'll never get to the causation, which that's very much what you do. That's very much what you're working towards. And even people that have anger issues, if we're honest, And we look at anger below that is fear. Yeah, there's some emotional specialists that suggest that anger isn't even its own emotion. It's nothing more than fight version of fear. I liken it to, I wrote about this in my book, is anger being like a popsicle, like a red popsicle. And the fear is the ice. And then the red is the kind of flavoring, I guess, and the color. Most of what we know is modern Anger is nothing more than fear or specifically repressed fear, undealt with fear or a fear that feels powerless. Like the classic example is of the kid who has a really scary home life or gets teased at school and he's really afraid, but he doesn't want to feel fear because it makes him feel powerless, but he has to feel something. So what he feels is anger instead. And it's just redirected, undealt with fear. And that's what most of modern anger is these days. It's almost a glorified emotional bypassing mechanism. Yeah, it's a clear sign that if somebody is punching holes in walls and road raging and all that, throwing people out of windows, that's their undealt with fear (laughs) showing up as anger. 
It absolutely is. And so a lot of people are saying, well, why do we even need fear? Fear plays a role, especially in us as a species. But in today's day and age with modern society and all of the good and bad things that we get from modern technology, like you said, it's easy for us to not really understand what it is, to understand how it shows up, to understand if it's our most readily available tool that we're always going to reach for it. So why do we have it? And then where do we go wrong? It's like wishful thinking. It's not even, why do we even have it? Like, we can't get rid of it. So why even have that conversation? It's not going anywhere. It's been around since the dawn of time. Life, the sentient beings, animals, all of that wouldn't even exist if it weren't for fear. So show some respect for crying out loud. And then the other thing is more happens in 20 minutes than used to happen in 20 years. And our amygdalas, these two almond-shaped nuggets at the top of the spine, the oldest part of the brain, been around, like I said, forever. It's not a thought-producing machine. It's an emotion-producing, or, or specifically, it's a manufacturing plant for fear. And all sensory data coming into our system, and we're talking 11 million bits of sensory data per second. So again, it's not a thought-producing machine. It's just happening way too fast. And if there's a threat, the amygdala will create and manufacture fear and send a shot. It's actually proven by science to show up first in your body, not in your mind. You know, there's a difference between the amygdala and your mind. And then it's supposed to flow like water through a hose and provide for you on point, intuitive, physical reaction, all without thought. It's brilliant, you know, in the form of fight, flight, freeze. So if you say, well, what's the point of fear? It's like, let's just become robots or something and, and live in a bubble. Like it's it just, it's such an ignorant thing to say. It's like, it, it is probably the most important, not just for safety, but for making intuitive decisions. Fear really helps people make decisions. People think, oh, you shouldn't make decisions based on fear. Well, if you don't invite fear into the decision-making process, you have no depth perception. We could go over that if you want, but I don't want to talk too broadly about this, but it is one of the most important natural kind of reactions to just sensory data that we need, not just to survive, but to thrive. So we just need to change our relationship to fear then, to be able to leverage it, to help us. Yeah. And when I talk to people, when I work with clients, when I try things on that people have to say quotes, you know, like feel the fear and do it anyway, things like that. I run it through the filter of seeing fear as a person in our lives. Let's call it a roommate that is with us from birth till death, that is just always there. And if you say to your roommate that's with you all the time, you know, what's the point of you even being here anyway? Is that going to create a healthy relationship with that roommate or is it going to piss that roommate off? And so that kind of language just pisses fear off and you do not want to piss fear off. I agree. <laughs> and I will say one more thing, just to finish the amygdala kind of vision is that to the amygdala, because I mean, there's plenty of things to be afraid of. There's no end in sight of things to be afraid of. And, and I don't want people to associate fear with scared. You know, I think when people think fear, it's like, well, I'm not scared. Well, that's, Scared is, it's like, see fear as a noun and scared is an adjective. There's many different ways that fear can manifest in your life. Scared is one of them. Could be worry, could be concern, could be excitement, could be any number of experiences that you have because of the fear being there. But just keep that in mind when I explain this. But because there's 
so much going on and the world is moving so fast and there's just so much input. The amygdala is just manufacturing fear like crazy. And yeah, we're not afraid of T-Rexes anymore, but there's a million other things and it's not even being afraid of, but there's a million other things to warrant fear. And so as a result, in today's world, especially fears with us, and most people are in denial of this and they don't want to believe this, but fears with us every single moment of every single day in nearly every single interaction we have, no exceptions. And so you can imagine having a healthy flowing considerate relationship with your fear is very important, but most people are, are like in denial of it. They don't want to believe it. They're like, I'm not afraid of anything. We hide our fear. Like we have a really messed up compromised relationship with this elephant in the room, this roommate that everybody has that's not going anywhere. And I mean, how much effort and energy do we have to spend pretending that the elephant in the room is not here or the roommate is not in the room when they are, who has any energy left to do anything else, you know? <laughs> yeah, we're dancing around it. Yes, dancing around. It. And I say that it's time that we make friends with this roommate. I mean, you don't see it as necessarily a gift, even though it is like a gift from the universe, but it's because it's uncomfortable. But it's like I'm Batman and it's Robin. And like, you may feel powerful if you punch Robin in the face, like, oh, you know, or you lock him in the basement and put duct tape over his mouth, you know, but Robin's not going to be denied. And, and you're kind of losing your best friend. You're losing somebody who got your back. And it's just not a good way to treat anybody, much less Robin, much less an emotion as wise and useful as fear. And even like you're saying, it, that's unsustainable to live in this deny it with our fingers in our ears and we're like, la, 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 I don't see you. Again, that leads to PTSD that builds that attrition is compounding interest that we eventually have to face. And there's never a good time for us. It usually happens when we don't have the time for it. And so the way that you approach fear, how do you approach it compared to what everybody else is doing? And kind of give us an idea of what that looks like. Because again, like you said, the general idea is even with anxiety, you look at a teenager now, the minute that they have any discomfort, fear, anxiety, they want to just change their biology and get on social media, look at TikTok, look at this, flood their emotions with this artificial positivity. And now they feel good for a moment so that they don't want to think about what's going on. And then they try to go on with their life. But that sort of just continues to accumulate as they live. All right. I'm going to give a big picture analogy that explains in crystal clear terms why some people struggle with anxiety disorders or depression or irrational fears with an S or PTSD and on and on. And so I'm going to talk for a little while and this is just going to really clarify things. Please. So I mentioned that the emotion of fear first shows up in the body and it's supposed to flow like water through a hose, like picture your body as a hose and provide for you on point intuitive physical reaction without thought. And then 10 to 90 seconds after the threat is gone, so too is the fear out of your system. So it flows into, through, and out of your life very quickly, and then it's gone. But because of what we're taught to do about fear, how we're taught to see fear, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of, dad says, you know, we start to be ashamed of our fear, like, okay, it's not even real. And we start to have these, this negative opinion of fear, and then we're taught to let it go. We're taught to meditate it away. We're taught to rationalize it away, like false evidence appearing real and 
There's nothing to be afraid of. See, it's fine. Like all the things that we're taught to do about fear, conquer and overcome it. Next thing you know, through lots of methods and modalities that we're all taught, put it out of your mind, replace it with calm. All that we really manage to accomplish is kinking the hose and stopping the flow of fear. And we're like, ha ha, I did it. I conquered fear. Well, all you've done is kink the hose. And then that water, that fear, that closed system, I'm closed to fear, right? So it's a closed system starts to build up and stay stuck in your body. And then it can show up in, I mean, 8 billion people are kinking the hose on fear either all of the time or most of the time because of our current way of dealing with it. And so that can show up in that trap system now kind of terrorizing your life in one of 8 billion ways. So everybody's very, very different. When I work with clients, I help them see the ways in which their trapped fear is terrorizing their life. For some people, it's PTSD. For other people, it's depression. But the most common ways that I see that having a kinked hose leading to backed up fear winds up messing up people's life are these three. The first way is it just shows up as a exaggerated, trapped, recirculating version of itself in the form of anxiety or an anxiety disorder. And so that's the difference between fear and anxiety. Like anxiety is just trapped fear in your body, recirculating round and round and round when there's no more threat. Or it can build up to epic proportions until eventually you're just driving down a country road, no fear, life is good. And all of a sudden you have a panic attack. That's trapped fear that you haven't been dealing with that finally, the second your guard is dropped, makes itself known by exploding like that out the cracks. The second way in which trapped fear can wind up affecting your life is like trapped water tends to do, it'll flood into any available space. Namely, it'll now flood into your mind or your thoughts and it'll show up as irrational fears with an S or it'll show up as insomnia. Like if your guard is dropped in the middle of the night, it's like that's when fear knows that it can get your attention. It'll travel to the place where you live, which is you're living in your head, right? And it'll make itself known in your thoughts. Round and round is negative thoughts or round and round is insomnia in the middle of the night. The third way is the most interesting, which is that trapped fear, like I mentioned with the kid who doesn't want to deal with this fear, can show up covertly redirected in other ways that don't even seem like fear at all, which is why you can have somebody that says they have no fear, but then they are excessively jealous or excessively angry. Or if fear feels powerless and anger is impolite, not welcome, you have to feel something. So you feel incredible sadness instead. Like all the emotions are so tied together. You have to feel something. So that's what you feel. And actually, if you look at the word depression, it's Latin for press down. If you press down your emotions, namely fear, anger, Press down. I don't want to feel fear. I don't want to feel anger. I don't want to feel sadness. You know, they become depressed. And so too do you. And then what do people with depression do? They take medication to medically repress their emotions. You know, they have pill assisted, medication assisted repression. And so, you know, the second you stop taking the pill, then it's back, of course. And then it, it's like a modern lobotomy because you also kind of euthanize 20 to 40% of your aliveness in the process, all just as a way to not have to deal with your, quote, negative emotions or fear, anger, sadness. So let me actually back up. So the entire anxiety and depression, healthcare, PTSD industry, what do they do? They teach 
more kinking of the hose. The meditation apps are like, imagine yourself in a field of poppies, right? Actually, there are four different levels. Sometimes these like meditation apps will be like, fear is normal and natural. It's not a sign of personal weakness. But now imagine yourself in a field of poppies. So there's like a comma after that. It starts off with good intentions, helping people get back in flow with their fear. But then boom, we're right back to fear shaming or negativity shaming. And cognitive behavioral therapy is dealing with this whole process intellectually. We call anxiety disorders and depression mental health issues. They're not mental health issues. There's nothing wrong with your mind. They are emotional health issues. And if you start to deal with your emotions emotionally instead of mentally or intellectually, then the fear won't flood into your mind. Bravo to all the really smart people who have come up with these band-aids, these treatments to help people with these emotional issues. And they work. They're actually scientifically proven to work. Otherwise, people wouldn't do them. But they're temporary. All they do is continue to help you kink the hose, which it contributes to the underlying cause of your emotional issue. And so it's gotten people from miserable to functional. It's even saved lives like medication, all of that. And I would never, ever, ever suggest that anybody get off their prescription medication. But there is another way. And the other way is to go back and learn how to be in flow with your emotions, unkink the hose, learn how to feel them, deal with them emotionally, and then they just flow like water through a hose and are gone out of your system very quickly. And that's what I teach. That's beautiful and it's profound. I know you're a fan of Zen as well. It's very much that idea of what we stop, what we feed. They say that when the emotion comes, if we stop and give it tea, it will stay. But if we just sort of allow, like you said, let it go without trying to kink it in some capacity, that's what allows it to flow. Now, hold on. I say stop and give it tea. Because back to that roommate, again, I'm listening to people's language about how they talk about it. It's like, okay, roommate, right? I'm just going to let you do your thing. I'm not going to give you any food or love or consideration or companionship or tea. And I don't want to feed you because I don't want you to thrive. It's still disrespectful. So we need to feed the fear. No, it's not so much feeding the fear. It's about honoring and empowering and respecting the fear. Here's the problem, though. At this point, the only version of fear that we're aware of is the fear that's stuck in our system, that's locked in the basement, that is seeking vicious revenge in the form of anxiety disorders or irrational fears or anger issues or what have you, depression. And we're like, that son of a bitch, right? I'm not the problem. He's the problem. But we don't realize that we have put fear and other emotions into a position where they have no choice but retaliate. And from fear's perspective, from the amygdala's perspective, what kind of a creature would try to get rid of their primary source of safety and security and intuition and instinct and on-point physical reaction, like locked in the basement with no food, no water, no sunshine. They can't breathe. They can't see. They're freaking out. Fear's freaking out in the basement, locked in your body. It's like screaming at people, pay attention to me. Soldiers with PTSD, they're handing them a puppy. They're taking them surfing, but they're not helping them get back and flow with their fear. And so fear is like showing up as nightmares in the middle of the night. Like it will not be denied. So it's really about not feeding it, but honoring it. And 
treating it with respect and learning how to undo the bad habit that you learned either as a child when you were first fear shamed, either on the schoolyard or by parents, well-meaning parents, or undoing the damage of boot camp, you know, the soldier learning the image of the drill sergeant screaming in their face and they just stand there stoically. It's like repressed, 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 repressed. And undoing the damage of our society's message about, you know, these emotions that are challenging or any kind of difficulty for that matter as a problem to be solved. And instead, realigning our perspective as seeing this as a resource to be tapped into, like back to Batman and Robin, like it's like taking Robin out of the basement, apologizing to Robin, like, I'm really, God, I've been such a jerk to you and brushing him off, giving him some tea and saying, okay, let's repair this relationship. And I have seen it happen again and again. Somebody who's been depressed for 30 years, whose mother was depressed, whose grandmother was depressed, It's familial. They think it's genetic. It's not. It's just a long history of kicking the hose. You takes effort to make friends with fear, and but it's a heck of a lot less effort than fighting a war with it your whole life and getting the same results. And I've seen people turn around depression in a couple days, anxiety disorder. It's profound how fast this works for people if they're ready. And like you said, they've done all these other things and it's kind of that definition of insanity. Maybe that's the wrong word in this topic, but they're doing the same thing, expecting to have something different and then it's not getting better or it works momentarily, but then they have to up the meds or they have to change. Like you said, they're not even functional and they're living, but they're really existing. They're not actually living a life. They're not able to have this sort of healthy relationship with themselves, which this allows them to have healthy relationship with other people. And even then with this idea of fear, like you said, Once we can cultivate that relationship with fear, now other people's fear may not have the same sort of impact on us as it did before. That was part one of my interview with former extreme skier, author of The Art of Fear, and keynote speaker, Kristen Ulmer. You can hear part two of the interview on the next episode of Octonom Verba, where Kristen returns to discuss why we need to have an intimate relationship with fear in order to thrive. Kristen also shares why it's not fear that actually holds us back, how to deal with the resistance to feeling fear, and how emotional intelligence and fear are linked. Go to kristenolmer.com to learn more about her monthly support calls and other upcoming events. Until next time, live a life of actions, not words. Live a life of Okta, non verba. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta, non verba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.